This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I'm intrigued to meet with a talented actor, author, musician, magician, and songwriter. His film credits include A Ghost Story, Lost River, and Decay. He is the author of the riveting memoir, Strange Cures, and a regular performer at the Magic Castle in Hollywood. He's the perfect guest for this mysterious, suspenseful, and seasonally transformative time of year. Coming up is my conversation with the inspired enigma, Rob Zabrecki. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hey, Pat. Hey, Rob. This is awesome for me. I have not met you, although we have so, so many friends in common. It's funny how that works, isn't it? You can run in the same circles for years, sometimes decades, and never connect with certain people. Yes, and you're legendary with those friends. I have to say, the kinds of things that you do that really intrigue me are your originality and your ability to transform yourself. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and your developing character in different parts of your life. I had the pleasure of recently reading a riveting memoir that you wrote a few years back called Strange Cures. I don't know what I would call it, a runaway stagecoach is what it is, if that's fair. I've read a few memoirs lately, and a few of them were as intriguing and as honest and vulnerable. And I wonder, in the writing of that for you, how long it took and what it was like to face the stories that you were sharing. It took about 10 years, the longest creative project I've ever worked on, and probably the hardest you know, memoir is such a personal thing. It was difficult. It was a massive challenge. It started off as a an effort to kind of let go of the past and stop easing up that feeling of nostalgia that I often get sucked into. I just thought that would be one way to let all of those stories and sort of chapters of my life out into the world and out of my head. And it was massively unsuccessful. <laughs> if anything, it opened up the wounds and the memories. And I, I come to terms now, it's okay. Certain people are nostalgic and certain people aren't. And I'm one of them. And I really thought that this project was going to rewire me. It was greatly wrong. Well, I think it was the poet E.E. E. Cummings said something like, it takes courage to grow up and become who you really are. Yeah, that's an amazing quote. Well, the truth is, is that it's accumulation of all of those things that make you the stage performer you are, whether it's in music or in magic or in art. It feels like all of those things that people might look at flaws or scars all become a defining moment of the voice you presently have. I think it's powerful in your lyric writing. I'm really fascinated by the character you've developed for the stage. And I would call you more of a 
magical actor than a magician. And it's not meant to be an insult. It's meant to be the highest compliment because you have a character that enters the stage and the mystery begins when they see your face. The story starts when you literally come into the room. There's a mysterious otherworldly sense. I don't know if this guy is undead. I don't know if he's been to the beyond and returned to give me a message, but you maintain it throughout the entire performance and then it leaves with you. So I get a sense that your character, Zabrecki, has a whole life outside of this few moments that you enter the stage. And that's really a credit to your acting ability. Well, thank you. If anything, it's a credit to sticking with something for 20 years. I started developing that character persona that's become known as the odd man in the basement of the Magic Castle in the late 90s. And it was credited to this idea of, of wanting to reinvent myself as something other than a musician, which was my childhood dream. And a lot of encouragement and support from my wife and creative partner, Tommy, who was like, yeah, the weirder you go with this and the more strange and deeper you dive into this realm, the more people are going to sort of be attracted to it. And it was fun. It was fun to do that. As I started pushing those boundaries down there in the basement way back when, I look at them as just some of the most fun and futile and free times in my, in my life that I've ever had because it was new ground. I wasn't doing it for any other purpose than to have a creative outlet. It wasn't for the sake of, say, being famous or <laughs> I realized it didn't have a lot of commercial appeal uh, at the time and still doesn't. It was one of those things where I was doing it for myself and laughing along the way and couldn't believe the further I pushed it, the more people connected with it. It was this win-win situation. As you know, when you do a creative project, you can be happy with it and one person might like it. Maybe zero people will like it. Conversely, you can do something and 20 million people can connect. I don't have control over that. And that's okay. So I do things for, for myself. And when people dig it, especially back then, it was this like, it was a green light. Okay, well, that kind of worked. Well, I know, what about this? What about that? And, you know, along the way, you start adding and subtracting and you end up with hopefully something that's unique and original. Hopefully the listener here will go check it out on YouTube and see what we're talking about. But to give them a little sense, you have this great deadpan that I would even say has a Buster Keaton quality to it. You maintain a certain amount of complete deadpanness, and then you have the stature of Abe Lincoln as an undertaker, in a way. There's a social awkwardness to the character, but there's an intent behind it, because there's art, and there's the dexterity of a Edward Scissorhands with some of the artful things that you do. I wonder what influences... You seem probably like you're an Edward Gorey fan. Is that, do you know his illustrations? He's got a quality like that you got a transfusion from him in some way. Certainly. I love Edward Gorey. And I realized when I was getting into magic that I was not going to ever be a, let's call it like a shredder, like a guitarist who was going to play like shredding riffs uh, because I got into it in my mid late 20s. So coming at it with I wasn't gifted with any sort of dexterity. No one said I was a fish to water, especially my good friend, John Lovick, who was there in the early days and has been a big part of my creative world. Is He realized that I didn't just take to this. I didn't just take a deck of cards and it was not anything I was particularly good at. In fact, I had to work five times as hard as any other magician to become competent. If I can't be the most dexterous magician, well, what, what do I have? And I realized that I I did kind of have a timeless face for the world of magic. And that's when I was able to go, okay, well, if it is timeless, well, what is it? That's when I started pulling from ideas that came from music and minimalist musicians and composers, 20th century composers like Terry Riley or Steve Reich, and even minimalist painters who would 
could leave very little on the canvas, but I could get more out of that than, say, looking at some abstract expressionist painting or something, but just really stripping it down to its core, having those the pauses and the beats between became just as powerful as doing a bunch of, you know, card manipulations <laughs> or wearing something flamboyant or having some, you know, circusy kind of music that was over the top. It was reducing and just peeling back all these things really well infusing other things that I was in love with from other art forms. And all those things just came together. It was almost in a flash. I went, oh, magic's an art form, like music is an art form, like painting, like dancing. Let's say costume design. You get the idea. You have a great sense of all of the various elements of theater. That's what I like. I like that your character is driving music choices, is informing facial expression. This is something that people who do an episodic act where they go, I can do this trick, I can do this trick. It has no armature. There's no spine in it. What's so great about your thing, you mentioned the pauses, that negative space becomes a really powerful tool, almost as if there's a hypnosis to it. The audience is at the edge of their seat. They don't know if you're going to pick them or pick the person next to them or just sort of creep them out. And you do it in such a fun way that there's a sort of a hidden delight of people observing this person. And I don't know what the backstory is for you when you enter the stage, but it feels like you were en route to something else when you come in and then you have to get back to it. Have you placed yourself? Is there something cooking uh, that you have to get back to? That's exactly it. I mean, it's a man who, in my backstory world, I've never been on a stage. I've just happened to dress in a ill-fitting tuxedo that's sort of tight and with a sort of black and white look that he's wandering down the street. There's an open door. He wanders on the stage and there's a group of people waiting to be entertained. So he just decides to take it upon himself to uh, amuse himself and hear these other humanly people. The more pretty and beautiful they are, the, the stranger they are to the Zabrecki character. I, I call it the Herman Munster effect where the monsters think that they're like Norman Rockwell, you know, Richie Cunningham and company. But in fact, they're of course not, but they see the mundane as strange and, and bizarre. And that was a fun thing to adapt to an idea for theater and stage. I'm normal. You're weird. Right. That's what I get. And I really like it. Hey, thanks. It's awesome. And let me just take that into the character development along with the acting, because it feels like you're I know you've done other acting in other forms and often playing a magician or playing some character, but I feel like you have a whole world of characters that you can play as an actor. And I wonder what your pursuit of that is, if that's something that you would like to do more of. There's so much depth in you as an actor that plays out even in that character. Well, yeah, that kind of brings us right up to the present time, meaning in recent years, I've been aiming as an artist to step away from that character, which I've relied on. I, I knew it worked. I knew it worked really well at the Magic Castle. It worked at magic festivals. It worked at conventions. It worked and worldwide. I performed in, say, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, all throughout Europe, Mexico, you name it. I've been there. And the audiences sort of react to the pathos of that character because he, he is so physical. You don't need to understand all the language so much because it's very behavioral. But having relied on that, Particularly during COVID, I started to, I had this desire to grow as an actor. I would say most of the jobs I've been hired for as an actor have been because people see that character. They go, that's interesting. That's its own thing. Come do that on our TV show. Come do that on our commercial, our short film, our feature film, whatever. And now I'm at a place where I only reference that character if it suits the material. I used to get an audition for nearly any role and I'd go, well, how can I take that character and put him into this thing? 
And I don't do that now. Now I go, how can I serve the words of this writer? It's a very different way of doing it. I relied on it because it, it worked to a certain degree. And now I'm just as excited to play a, a middle-aged dad uh, or a lawyer or an auctioneer or whatever than I am sort of going, well, how would that character fit into this? Going now, how can I be Rob Zabrecki, 50-whatever-year-old man, working himself into, into this material. And so it's been a, a very gratifying thing to feel that artistic growth, because I hadn't had it for a while. It was sort of in our creative lives, we, we find our grooves and we go along and we surf them out until they either run their course or for some people, those certain things work their careers. Look at Elvira. It's a great example of somebody who's decades of, of doing one thing really well and it, it works. But for me, the, the creative exploration, I feel like it's just starting. And it, I feel in many ways, like I did when I was 14, 15 years old, and I got my first bass guitar, I'm like, I'm going to start a band. And it was this thing that I would fall asleep and wake up with. And every waking moment was all about wanting to express myself musically. Now, as an actor, I'm doing that going, wow, there's there's so many different opportunities. And it's all based on how I want to grow as, a, as an actor and how I want to, how I see myself fitting within the writing of, of any given piece. So I always look for interesting pieces that are well-written that I can feel creative in. Because it doesn't, as, as you know, as an actor, you're often given material where you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this, but it's not, it's a challenge. Having used the magical character was what I would call an instrument you knew how to play. And now you're wanting to be more of a multi-instrumentalist in that you don't have to be that thing on that same note. I did see a part of a trailer for a, it looked like a Halloween movie called Boo, mm -hmm. but it looked like you were playing a dad and it looked like it, you were in a situation where I thought, hey, this is even better because there's a reality that you're playing at the same time. It doesn't seem as limited for you to do that. In service to the storytellers that you work with, that's a very important thing to be able to do is bring all of your own world into it. And I guess that's really the art of an actor is interpreting words and making that message come through, feeling how can you serve the story? That's exactly right. I loved being the dad in that feature film. It was, there was plenty of evil forces. I wasn't one of them. Well, in a way I was, I was a alcoholic Christian scientist who sort of was in his head a lot and drank too much. So he had his own demons, but it was very much not, you know, the odd man character. The last thing I'll say about that is in magic, you know, you can sort of write, produce, direct, and act. That's all you up there. You get the credit or the discredit for every beat when you're on stage. And all of that is ultimately, depending on how much help you have, that's not seen when you're on the stage. You're that one thing. And in acting, you are a much smaller fraction of that. You're given presumably a script somebody else wrote. You don't get to choose the fonts of the credits. You don't get mm. to choose the music that's in back of you when you're walking down the street. All those, all those things are up to somebody else. It's given me the opportunity to sort of narrow the focus and just try to tell that one part of the story within the lines that I have. And it is a great, great joy. I have fall, completely fallen in love with it and I'm really excited about it. Well, you mentioned earlier our share friend, John Lovick, who also goes by Handsome Jack. He did mention to me that he worked with you magically and said that the thing he really admired was how hard you worked, how every day you thought about it and you applied yourself. And I think that maybe you have a bit of a compulsive personality where you do find a thing what you found in music and what you found in magic, you are now finding in acting. And I would say not to underestimate you because that's a superpower in a way to be able to focus so much on something that you're passionate about. And you'd seem to be insatiable in terms of wanting to learn more about any subject you pick up. 
It is my superpower. I do not think I'm a, a particularly talented person at all. I think I have as much talent as anybody does. But I do have that burning desire to when I get focused on something and I want to do it. I have this conceit that I can do things. Uh, <laughs> And which I shouldn't always be doing. I, I put out plenty of indie music that I could never listen to. If you put a gun to my head, I put out, <laughs> I'd done plenty of, you know, designs for flyers and kind of in the indie rock world of the late eighties, early nineties in Los Angeles, put on so many shows and did so many things that I was not particularly qualified to do, but I had this conceit that I could do them. So I did them. And it happened in magic. I got out there. I was not ready to, I wasn't like, I had no right stepping in the magic castle going, oh, I can kind of go down here in the basement and do a little mentalism piece. Looking back, I there's so many things I probably would not have done, but I get something in my head and I go, yeah, I can do that. So I'm not afraid to fail. I'm at a point in my life where I don't really care what other people think about me. So if, if somebody's like, that was a disaster, that's kind of cool in a way, um, especially in mid-age. It's kind of funny that, you know, 10 years ago, I took up tap dancing. Within a couple of years, I'm like, yeah, I can I can do this at a variety show somewhere. And it was horrible. Uh, you know, I would say it was like, <laughs> wow, that guy shouldn't have been doing that. Uh, is this a joke? And I was like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Knowing that there was something amateurish about it, made it comical and knowing that I was going to probably be better, a better dancer at some point led me to think that, well, if I don't do this now, I'm not going to get to that next level. You got to fail in front of people. And that's something that clearly I've never been afraid of doing. Okay. But that is the lesson. If there is a creative lesson is that it's okay to fail and that failure hasn't killed you any number of times. And I believe that there's a risk to reward that comes from it. Meaning that each time there's an improvement, 5%, 10%, or you decide I'm not good at it. But even if it's amateurish, I know that character actors in musicals that look great but can't sing great sometimes can sell the emotion and the normalcy of the character without hitting technical notes. Even magicians that are mechanics that can do every move who can't entertain, they're the ones that are held back. They don't advance by being better and better mechanically. And we've talked to singers on this show that talked about being able to connect with the audience and to be able to tell a story musically, even if it's not perfect. So I think that idea that you, that you're happy to walk off the high dive and not realize you don't know how to swim till you're halfway down, that leap of faith, I think, I think passion will get you to the edge of the pool. Once you make that leap, you're less afraid of it each time, aren't you? Of course. You have to know you're going to fail. I think I've embraced my failures. I call them art tears. When I talk to magicians about presenting magic in theater, I, I say, you have to learn to love your failures. It's going to happen. You're going to do it. The art tears are almost like embracing something that you love, knowing that it's probably not going to go as you wanted, knowing that that's going to be part of the process. I love my art tears. And and also chipping away, killing your babies as... as Hemingway, as others have said, you got to be willing to kill your babies where you you work on something for so long, three months, six months, and you realize that that thing that seemed so right is so wrong. And just to go, goodbye, what's next? You right. know, let's open up that let's open up that creative space for the next thing to, to come to you. I'm working as much on offense as I am on defense, if that makes any sense. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And it's funny, I was in Vermont and went to the Ben and Jerry's ice cream plant. And they make all kinds of great ice creams, but they've also named and made flavors that didn't go right. What's super cool about it is that they celebrate it up behind there. There's a graveyard 
with all the flavors that failed. There's a tombstone for each one of them with the name of the ice cream and a little description. I think even if you go to their website, they probably have a web page for it. But it's really fun, and it's really it acknowledges that there was things along the way on the journey. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's cool. There's an act of committed courage in each step. Certainly the transition from musician to magician was one. Now from magician to actor, leaving behind the insurance policy of the character and the tricks and the knowing glances. Because as an actor, you now have to be even more in the moment, not of the story, but who you're acting with and what the next take is like. I know that you're a student of ephemeral art form and isn't acting the most temporary of those? Of course. You have to be so there and you, you have to have those that script in your bones is what I've really learned. And not just your lines, but the other person's lines. I think it's just as important to have this life so being specific. They always say acting is, lies in the specificity of the piece and, and know where you're coming from, know where you're going and just having that you can see it. Yeah, I can watch TV or any film and go, yeah, this guy is, it feels real. The work is there, you know, or, and when it's not, that person's not being specific. They don't know the story that they're telling. The words are coming out. They're looking at the other actor, but artistically they're coming short. So it's a really fascinating thing to, to watch. I think in other actors, I've, I've been fascinated on, on that. Turning off the sound is such a great way to, I think with acting to see the behavior of, of two people if they're communicating, whether it's through glances or gestures or whatever, as opposed to what uh, my wife and I call the stare and talk, where it's just story, words, getting, pushing information across. You know, you see that on procedural TV shows all the time or soap operas. Or, I don't really watch that stuff. But when I do, I'm like, oh, there's no, I, I have no idea. If the sound was off, I wouldn't know what's going I have no idea what's going on here. Getting the story in your bones and, and believing what you're doing, it's a great, it's a good feeling. And it's, it's a lot of work. It's very hard. It's difficult learning, diving into a, a, a new art form. Even though I've been doing, I've acted in several things over the past 10, 15 years. It's only this last year that I've taken it. I've really pushed my focus on that and go, why are these people so great? And why are these people not so great? And if you start breaking it down, it's all right there. And you, you can do that in any art form. I like tearing things apart and putting them back together. My creative mind, it, it really helps me to kind of know every job of what's going on. It's endlessly fascinating these days. Being curious is definitely something that keeps you young, but it also keeps you interested. This podcast is a result of many years ago reading a Brian Grazer, the producer, wrote a book called A Curious Mind. He introduces a thing in it called The Curiosity Conversation. And when he left college, they weren't other people in entertainment. They were just, they were spies. They were total strangers, oftentimes an expert in their field. And he would set up a time to have 10 minutes with them. And he would turn it into an hour of just probing to find out what they knew. And he was insatiably curious and sort of encouraging other people to do that. And the pandemic sort of shut down my regular forms of expressing myself. And I kept thinking, wait a minute. This is the perfect form to get to know people like you or others that are in that are aerialists, that are ventriloquists, that do other things, and in some ways invite the listener to the coffee table to be a part of that conversation. I feel like I wouldn't have met you for another year if we didn't have this kind of forum. No, I agree. For in some ways, it's brought us together more than anything. Grateful for the the internet and the pandemic for that that one thing. Also, I feel like I I want to salute the pandemic 
for taking excuses off the table because people always say, oh, I'm too busy. Oh, I can't do that. No, I don't know how to cook. Hey, what's your excuse now? Like, learn, take picks up hobbies up, figure something out that doesn't rely on just the internet. Yeah, I would say almost shifting gears from one art form to another. That just happened naturally through the pandemic. And I was able to take a lot of time to, to look at that and sleep on it and not feel that there was any pressure to go out and do a magic tour or write another magic lecture or fly to a country for the sole sake of making a few bucks or whatever. So it's been great for that. I agree with you. It's nice to have this chance to connect with people that in, in ways that uh, you probably wouldn't otherwise. You have a few other talents that I want to bring to light. I read that you are an auctioneer and you mentioned the word earlier. I don't know in what context, but that's a pretty specific art form too, in terms of helping people raise funds and working in a way where you're communicating and really getting a response out of an audience that requires them to go into their wallet. So can you just share with me a little bit about where one trains for that? And then do you do it frequently or occasionally? I was trained at a very well-known auction house in, in LA called Butterfield and Butterfield. It's now called Bonhams. It's changed names a few times. But my transition from music into magic, late 90s, bought a house, I'd just gotten married. I mean, my band broke up in 1998 and I was not looking back. I was not going to try to rely on a publishing deal or a solo career. Like I was like, thank you. I am done. The 10th year of that band was was not satisfying really in, in any way. So to let go of that and go, well, I, I just bought a house. What am I going to do? And I knew somebody who worked at this auction house part-time and being a sort of a fan of history and all the things that come through auction houses, it was a natural place to, to start working part-time. And I fell in love with it. I actually started working in the entertainment memorabilia department. So uh, films, props, ephemera from old films would come through and we would sort of catalog them and present them at previews. And then I would be on the phone as a phone bidder during the auction. And so this whole cycle would happen you know, every, every couple of months. One day they, I, I saw in the break room, they're offering uh, auctioneer classes for people interested in becoming an auctioneer. Uh, that way they could have their auctioneers in-house and have to hire them outside, which they had been doing previously. So I looked at it as, hey, I'm a performer. I love auctions. I, it's exciting. I, I love the energy of a good auction room and the vibe that you'd feel in those, the tension between two bidders bidding on something that they were passionate about having and taking home. I was like, yeah, this sounds, I want to give this a, a shot. And so every Friday lunch for, say, a year, we'd kind of go and set up, we set up these mock auctions where 10 of us would hold paddles up, another person be there and very complex job. There's not a lot of room for human error, but it's also a performer's job talking about good auctioneers because there's plenty that, again, why is that one so great? Why is this one not so great? And the good ones lean into it. They, they get really, they're, they're almost as excited as you are and they're getting really thrilled and they see the tension and the vibe and they always knowing where the bid is and sort of occasionally being a little cheeky saying, you know, you're not going to let him get away with that, are you? <laughs> It's only money. Keep bidding. So I, I took to it and I started calling bids at some of their auctions. And through that, started doing charity work and would go out for different organizations and loved that because when you're the auctioneer at that type of event, you're there to really just raise a lot of money for a very passionate thing, whether it be lymphoma or children's music school or, or whatever. So you're like getting on your hands and knees. And, and oftentimes you're paired up with, with a celebrity who is going to just their presence is going to pull money in the room. So I've done some very big ones with people like Susan Sarandon and it, it, the list goes on and on. That's really fun too. Or she's just like, come on people, bid. And I'm like, okay, they've got $5,000. Five, and you're, so you're like being very technical, technically minded, but 
again, it's a performer's job. I very much enjoy it. I infuse a lot of comedy in between it to, to make people at ease. I really have enjoyed doing that job and have no time, have no uh, intention of, of stopping. I do when the phone rings, basically. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't done any during the pandemic, but a few times a year, the, f- the phone rings and people say, hey, come out to a charity auction. Here's the deal. And I kind of, kn- I get to know, learn about the, the charities how much they're trying to raise. I help them sort of organize the auctions themselves. There's an art to, believe it or not, laying out an auction and knowing, you know, where the big buyers are and sort of, there's a lot of trapdoors, hidden assistants and mirrors to that job as well, I would say. There are, and you're a conductor. You're a conductor, yes. I'm going to change subjects again because I also understand that at the Magic Castle, one of the responsibilities you had is hosting seances. And again, while that leans into a character you've used, you're telling a bigger story. I have not experienced it, but I know my producer, Amanda, told me that she was at a seance that you did. And it was a Valentine's night where most were couples, but she came on her own and she happened to be sitting next to you when she had a jump scare that required her fingernails to grab into your forearm. For the audience who won, let's maybe set the stage of describing the Magic Castle environment and then tell us what happens in that room where only... 12 or 13 people are seated around a table for an experience of a seance. I'd be happy to do that, but I can't say another word without full disclosure of realizing that half your listeners are like, wait, this guy, musician, (laughs) magician, auction house, and then auctioneer, and he does seances. It's weird, and I know it's weird. So if anyone's tripping out going like, what are you doing? The answer is I don't really know. I'm just living every day as, as it comes to me. But when an opportunity comes, I jump on it. You've got the Boy Scout merit badge with the seance. All of this returns to the fact that you're an actor presenting a seance. And I contend that while you were a very good musician and I hear rock solid rock star, John also told me he saw you in a reunion with your friends and he put you up against anybody on the guitar and singing, that all of these are just part of your patchwork quilt. It does make a whole. It may not seem to make sense, but the picture is quite beautiful when you step back from it. Thanks. I've been called a puzzle of a man. It's about as accurate as I've ever heard it, because the truth is, I barely know half the time where this is going. But I do know that I am passionate about seances and the history of them. In 1998, I became a member of the Magic Castle, which is a a private club for magicians and, and their guests in Hollywood, California, set in a Victorian mansion. Uh, you have to be invited by a member or show up with a member to be to gain entrance. There's a dress code. There's a certain decorum to the whole thing. It's incredible. There are magic posters and ephemera everywhere, turn-of-the-century lithographs, posters of Houdini, Thurston, Chung Ling Su, and the like, all there. Really a, a celebration of this, of this great art form. And it's all right there near Hollywood in, in Highland. So I fell in love with it. My wife fell in love with it. We, it became our very quickly our, our home away from home. Inside the Magic Castle is a private, it's going to sound like I'm redundant, but there's a private club within the private club, and that's the seance room. So it's called the Houdini Chamber, the Houdini Seance Room, and it's a separate ticket. You have to buy dinner or have a ticket to go to a seance within this room. It's not If you just go to the Magic Castle, you don't just get to show up to a seance. It's a, it's a bonus round sort of event. My wife and I went to actually a couple. We loved it. It was a recreation of a Victorian style seance. If you don't know what those were in the 1920s, it was a, a fad. Like it was a major craze, like the hula hoop or something later on, where people became fascinated with contacting the departed. Largely after World War I, where thousands and thousands of deaths and boom, 
here comes this art form where we can contact your dead brother or husband or wife that you lost in the war for whatever money or whatever the transition was on, on that transaction. So seances became really popular and they were done in these little parlor rooms. And Harry Houdini, master magician, one of our heroes in magic, came along and said, these spirit mediums, these gypsies who are performing these, these seances are frauds. That They're performing magic tricks and often poorly in exchange of taking your money and giving you the idea that we've just contacted Aunt Zelda or you know Uncle Joe or Brother Mike or whatever. There's always an Aunt Zelda. Always, always. That's kind of how Houdini's place in the seance world. It would take us an hour to get into the fun facts of that. And it's very rich. And if you don't know about the Houdini's place in the seance world, look it up. It's not a waste of your time. Anyway, Houdini's seance room at the Magic Castle. I became fascinated with these seances. The gentleman who had been performing them for 30 years pulled him aside one night. I said, look, I perform here regularly. I've got a this gaunt visage. People know me for this dark persona. I love seances. If you ever were looking for a backup, I would love to say, learn the ropes. He wasn't particularly keen on giving up his job. He was happy doing it. Unfortunately, he had a, had a heart attack a couple of weeks later after me talking to him. <laughs> and he needed, he needed that replacement more than he thought. And by the way, no relation to the timing. That's correct. So anyway, I, I learned the ropes and became really fascinated with that world and became at that time a, a spirit medium at the Magic Castle. I loved it. And continue to love it as much as uh, I did when I started about 12 years ago now. And it's reopening. The club, Magic Castle, was closed for a long time. As it's opening, the, the, the seance room has been revamped. It hasn't really been touched since the late 60s. And it's kind of, there's a new take on it. And it's, it's really exciting. I'm glad to be a part of that. And working with uh, some really interesting, creative people in, in making it a little bit better than what it was, which was a little more of a Disneyland in the 60s, kind of a haunted mansion ride. Certain people would agree that that's what it was. And hopefully it'll be a new thing and I'll get to be a part of it. And this is the time of year that they traditionally do a seance to bring Houdini back on Halloween because he passed away on Halloween, I believe. Yep, that's right. And there has been a longstanding tradition of trying to reach out to Houdini to see whether he could send a message back. Will they do that this year? Depending on the health codes and, you know, the COVID and, and sort of where things are at in the world, uh, the idea is yes. That concept goes back to, yeah, he died in, on Halloween 1926. You're absolutely right on, about that. And he'd always said, if there's an afterlife, if I can come back, I will. And if I do come back, I'm going to contact who? My wife. we got a couple of code words. And so for 10 years after Houdini's passing, his wife, Bessie, conducted seances every year on Halloween. And after 10 years, Houdini did not come back. She decided that it was time to move on. And since then, others have, have taken it upon themselves to, to conduct their own seances and keep their tradition alive. So really, that's when you come to a Houdini seance at the Magic Castle, you're getting a, a history lesson on seances. Uh, and then basically Houdini's that kind of, I gave you the, the cliff notes there, but Houdini's place in that world. And then we try to contact Houdini ourselves. Wasn't there one time in the last number of years where the code word had come out in a seance and there was a sense that it maybe was the bedside nurse or somebody who had had revealed that? Or is that just a fable? That, I believe, is a fable. But hey, what do I know? There were two words and, and they've been available to, to the public. I, I believe we always knew that those words were all, if you dove deep enough into Houdini biographies, you would sort of know that they were, uh, one of the words uh, was believe. 
And the other word was, was Rosabelle, which was a song that Bessie sang. They met at Coney Island uh, when, when Houdini was working vaudeville stages. And Bessie, was a, 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 his wife of 33 years, was a singer of something called the, the, the Floral Sisters in Coney Island. So when they met, she was singing the song Rosabelle. They, uh, they never came to light. Houdini didn't come back. So uh, one Halloween, I lived in Omaha, Nebraska as a kid, and one Halloween as a tribute to Houdini's death, I did the inverted straitjacket escape in the old market, upside down, hanging from a crate with the Rob Zabrecki method of having never done it before. I committed to doing it before I even knew how to get out of the jacket. And I put up posters and I told people it was happening. (laughs) And my parents were out of town when I did it. Oh and I was God. about 19 and I didn't live at home anymore, but you know, I was still pretty young and I convinced a crane company to bring their crane to the old market. And, and, and when I started with a street show and I ended with the straight jacket escape and I was too dumb to know there was straight jackets out of that were rigged up. So I had sent to a institution in Indiana where they sent me a real regulation straight jacket. I had my friends put me in it and I said, don't let me out of this no matter what I say. And I could not get out of it. And they went to lunch and they were gone for an hour. And I was in a flop sweat when they came back uh. in preparation. And I decided I didn't, I, I'm saying I didn't know what to do. I sprayed the inside with Pam cooking oil. Like I was just on my own trying to figure out how to get out of a straitjacket. But by the time that moment came, it wasn't, I had no confidence. And I they started to take me up and I started to spin and the audience was like, it was a dizzying thing. And I thought, forget showmanship. I'm getting the hell out of here. Like I'm whatever I have to do. And, and that was the one and only time I did it. I did it successfully in about 95 seconds. And we found footage. I think you'll appreciate this as a, as a marketing guy and a, a guy that knows how to tell a story. But there was footage of Houdini in the old market or down in that area by the Orpheum doing it some 50 years previously. And they were able to put these in a news story side by side. And it was blast out um, on the overnight news. And my parents saw it in Hawaii. It was like a a Ferris Bueller's day off thing where I got sort of exposed for creating chaos. Uh, And it it was uh, fun and I would never do it again. Here's to you for saying yes. That's, that's amazing without having done it before. It was terrifying, but it, but also Halloween has always had some significance to me from trick-or-treating as a kid to doing stand-up routines about my first Halloween costumes. And I imagine for you, given your sort of dark humor, that you probably had fairly storied Halloweens as a kid as well. Yeah. I mean, growing up in, in Burbank in the 70s was pretty amazing. I would say it was a, it was a you know, very ideal place and time. I think there was nothing like it. Just grabbing a pillowcase and heading out the door and see you later, mom. See you in a few hours. Don't come back till midnight. The Dracula cape on and some fangs and some lo-fi makeup on and like, and that's it. And then, yeah, coming home with a stomach ache and, you know, maybe some kids threw eggs at you because you, I don't know, because they were older, but yeah, I loved it. I, I have great memories of that time and place. It was pretty great. I remember some older kids setting a bag of dog poop on fire. The idea was that they would come out and stomp the fire out and get the dog shit on their on their shoe. And that was the older kids. Yeah. We, we topped the older kids by running to the back door and knocking on their back door so they would immediately run through the house with the shit on their foot and it would get on their carpet. 
and then we would take off running. I think that was the nature of mischief, childhood mischief at the time was just to try to get the neighborhood to talk about something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I have a dark side. I'll throw that on the table right now. I've never been a mean-spirited person. <laughs> Throwing an egg at a car is one thing, but somebody like, when it came to certain things, I, I would draw the line. It's funny how the mind works. I love this revelation, though. I really do love this revelation because there's such a great dichotomy to, between the two, but, but that you're a guy that has that you know exactly where the line is where you're going to step away. I know. And it's insane. If you go, well, why would you do this and not that? You're like, I, I, cause I would, I could probably come up with some stupid reason, but yeah. But I was in Arkansas doing a show one time around this time of year. And I saw this weird billboard that said zombie hayride paintball. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. What, what is this? And I thought, Oh, it's just a phony billboard. And I told my production manager, I was like, call the number, find out what this thing is. They didn't have one on the night we had the show, so we couldn't do it. But what it was, was a hay rack ride where people rode in the back of the hay wagon. They drove through the woods and zombies, human zombies tried to get on the truck and people shot at them, leaving big paintball. I mean, it was like a, a great reinvention of what to do with paintballs. And the zombie people were all, they were decked out and had face guards on and they would just lumber towards the truck and get shot at and they wouldn't stop them. They would just keep coming. And The location is what fascinates me. You said Arkansas? <laughs> yeah. Now that being done in Burbank, you'd be like, eh, eh, okay. Or Griffith Park, you're like, okay, bunch of SAG actors doing this. But in Arkansas, like that's something where I would jump and buy a ticket for <laughs> in a second. Even driving the truck being on it or being a zombie right. all like I'd, I'd like to one of each please you know that's super cool and i'm going to encourage people to read your memoir it is so extraordinary the strange cures book has chapter after chapter of close calls and self-sabotage and band antics and i think the la times calls it a a punk poem to a forgotten la or forgotten mm -hmm. burbank or something and it's all in there you know, you're talking about not wanting to have somebody step on a bag of dog dew, and yet a friend in you that from the band when you first met him, take a car ride across manicured lawns and through rose bushes. And so this is why I'm so amused. Yeah. Obviously, you weren't driving the car, but probably at the time, it seemed like the adrenaline made you think, hey, this, this is a pretty good idea. Yeah. And smoking crack with drug dealers and cross-dressers and gang members and all of that would be fine. Like, Hey, well, I'm not hurting anybody. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I'm driving, you know, somebody's driving this car or shooting up illegal drugs in my car and then driving. None of that was particularly smart or some of that's a precautionary tale, I would say, but none of it was, it was done maliciously or uh, done to, to hurt anybody. I would say. Probably for you, it's a way of, of staving off pain and other parts of your life that it feels like you were doing it to yourself, not to others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't need to deep do a deep dive. It is in the book. It is, you own it. It's all a part of your character that you have transformed yourself in the most amazing way that for other people, I think the past is prologue, which leads to the memoir, which also leads to this all this newfound art forms and to your acting. That metamorphosis is something that anybody's capable of. Is there any kind of advice or sort of mentor that you would give to somebody that may be struggling with that transition? 
Yeah, I mean, it's nothing that and no one's ever heard a million times. It isn't all over the internet on slogans or something you won't see at Starbucks written on a chalkboard these days because there's so many ways of communication. There's so there is a lot of great artistic positivity out there, but you know, it goes back to the simple adages of don't listen to other people. I think being punk in in spirit, and I mean that in, in an ethos, not in a mohawk, pierced nose way. I mean that in a sense of a core of finding out who you are and and diving into that self-expression and going for it 100%, whatever it is. When you're moving in new areas that people don't understand or particularly don't find in tune with who they think you are or this idea of yourself, you're the you're driving that train and it's up to you to go to have that confidence or false sense of it whatever it's taking that can see that you can do something and go for it and and while you're doing that trying to find an original voice and being consistent within that voice and being specific we talked a little bit about specificity those are really big pillars that i i constantly go back to that i think help define a voice and and will keep you kind of in check to do things that are people can look at and go yeah that's you know maybe maybe they'll connect with it but maybe they won't and of course doing stuff for yourself is the last thing i would add to that look i get it we're humans there's a level of we've got to coexist and there's that's a whole conversation in, in, into itself but in an artistic sense you know you got to do something for yourself because it feels right and if anybody else wants to hit like on that thing or buy a ticket for your show or buy a ticket for your movie or buy your record or whatever. That's, that's amazing. Those are the, the fruits of, of the labor, but you can't expect them. You know, you really can't. This whole time that we live in where Lykonomics is the, is the standard. Do I have enough likes or do people, are they forwarding my stuff is, can, can be quite confusing to the artistic. People say the phrase fake it till you make it, which I don't subscribe to, but very similarly, I subscribe to see it until you can be it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Great. It's just a better way to understand that it's okay to imagine yourself at a thing or to declare that you're going to be something. Every version of the things you've talked about today have that conviction at the center of it. I'm interested in a seance. I'd like to learn about auctioneering. There's audacity in all of it, in music, in writing lyrics, in all of those things. It is literally stepping forward and finding out what it is that entertains or amuses you or, or makes you want to be a wholer person in some ways. So I just, I feel like you're a, a shining example, not at every moment in your life were you the person that people wanted to be. But I think as you began to find your voice and express yourself in a way that's authentic, it's totally transferable. I really, I look forward to seeing a bountiful acting career from you and also what's next around the corner. I, I have no idea how you're going to turn the page every stage of your life. But it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I hope we can keep this conversation alive. That means a lot to me. I mean, I like I say, I, I love artistic endeavors of connected with other people. And it, it's brought me here, I, I would presume. And, and it's been a total pleasure chatting with you about very like-minded subjects and topics that are, you know, art is the focal point of my life. Since I was a teenager, it always has been. And to talk about it is a gift without getting too sort of sentimental. But this process is always running through my mind. I just appreciate having a voice that's heard. So again, thanks. Well, I'm happy to amplify it. You're a very artful guy. So kudos to you and to your wife, Tommy. And I wish you guys continued success. You as well. Thanks for joining us today. 
take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just two dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la.